So we're carrying on in our series called More Than a Feeling. And up until now, you've had Pastor Andrew speak about joy. We've spoken about love. Today's topic is a little trickier. Uh, And it's trickier because we have a very human notion when it comes to this next one. And in that human notion, there's these flaws that we bring to the table. And and, and I think you'll understand what I mean in a moment here. Um, If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 as as a a starting place, really focusing in on verses uh, 4 and 5. And this is kind of be our our launching pad to try and figure out what does this thing even mean? Um, Because there is some difficult language in it that we don't always handle well. So Psalm chapter 5 verses 1 to 7, focusing really hard on verses 4 and 5. And if you don't know where the book of Psalms is, in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Psalm chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Here's what it says. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectingly. For you are not a God who is pleased with the wickedness, with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies and bloodthirsty Uh, The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house in reverence. I bow down towards your holy temple. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into this, uh, for what us would be a very, very difficult topic to try and understand as it relates to you, I pray, Lord, that we would have eyes that see and hearts that are open to what you have for us. Lord, that we would gain a better understanding of what it means for you to be a God who has emotion and that we have a relationship to that emotion. We share those emotions as well because we're created in your image. And in doing so, Lord, we want to be able to handle our emotions the way you handle yours. And so, Lord God, would you help us understand that and, and to, to seriously consider what it means for us to have this particular emotion today. In your name I pray. Amen. So... Uh, I want to suggest a couple of things moving forward here. And and one of those things, especially as it relates to emotion, is that our emotions are inherited. And and here's what I mean when I say that. Uh, In in Genesis, we read that we are created in the image of God. In the image of God, we are created. That's how it's written. And so to be an image bearer means that there is the likeness to God that we're going to have. And so there are things that we we look at and we say, yeah, that makes sense because God is like this. And so we have these things. And even though we have these things and they're flawed, we have them because they're from God, right? So God loves. We know love. We, we have the capacity to love. And so we inherit our emotions uh, from God. And so every emotion that we experience when not polluted by our sin nature or just in its purest form, um, is that which reflects God. Now, we understand and the sin nature comes in, things get jostled quite a bit and, and our emotions are not pure. Our emotions are weird. I think that's another thing that's important to state. 
And, and by weird, what I mean is, is that they're really inconsistent, uh, you know, and, and even in the way that we talk about it, um, you know, I love my wife. I actually tell her I'm wild about her. I'm crazy about her. Um, but I love my wife. And I use that same term, that term of affection, that term of ultimate endearment. I use it for pie. <laughs> like I love pie or I love steak or I love brisket or I love, you know what I mean? And, and so our emotions are, are weird. They're inconsistent because I, when I say I love these things, they, they by no means have the same value to me that my wife Janet has. Um, but yet I still use that emotion to describe my affection for barbecue. Uh, and so we're weird in, in how we use our language with our emotions. But I think I want to go back to this point here that our emotions are flawed in that uh, all the emotions that we have, they are God-given, but they're flawed because of the sin nature. And so my love for Janet, uh, though, is the greatest expression of love that I can offer her, you know, in terms of affection that I can offer her, it's, it's not without some measure of selfishness, right? It's not 100% pure. And, and, and there are times where, where I don't love her as well as, as I know that I have a desire to. It's because the emotions are flawed. And that, that's the topic of love. And, that, and that's something that, that we all gravitate towards, right? Like we, we desire love in this world. And, and so it's something we gravitate towards as an emotion um, that we say, yeah, you know what? I'm not perfect in that emotion. The emotion that we're going to talk about today, or the language of emotion that we're going to talk about today, is hate. And this is a tough one. Because when we talk about God specifically, we, we hear this word hate and we immediately put it in this human lens, right? Like, um, and, and it's tough for us to navigate what it means for God to hate something. And, and so, you know, I, I actually think it's because of our experience with our own emotions that we have difficulty thinking about God um, having emotions, especially uh, the emotions that typically lead us to sin. So we don't always know what to do with God's emotions. And so when we talk about, for example, hate, we understand, right? Like, let's just put ourselves on evil, uh, level ground here because we are. We understand that our hate of something um, can sometimes be like really righteous. Like I hate human trafficking. And I believe that that's a righteous anger to have towards something like that. Um, but I can tell you that in my life, I, I have had hatred for people. And, and in that hatred for people, I have yet to have found a time that that didn't lead me to some place of sin. And so when we're talking about hate as it relates to God, we have this disconnect because we understand that God doesn't sin. And yet we have this language of hate in the scripture, like the one we just read, that he hates all evildoers, all those who do evil. Um, and, and so we immediately don't know what to do with it because it's so outside of our consistent move towards sin in the topic of hate. So it's a difficult one, right? I want to tell you, uh, there's 147 occurrences of the word hate relating to God in the Bible. 147. 
So it's not like it's a small thing. It's something that actually happens uh, in the scripture and it's described. Now, when we look at the scripture, then I think it's important for us to have, rather than have our own sense of what the definition of hate should be, uh, let's look at a biblical definition. And, and this is really intriguing. I, I found that when I was doing this study, it actually got me pretty excited um, uh, towards where, where you could see where the hate of God leads to something incredible. First thing that we find is that um, the description of hate or the definition of hate biblically is that it despises unholy actions. Hate is defined as despising unholy actions. Now that makes sense to us, right? Sin is something that God hates. There's nothing about that that troubles us. Um, We are fairly firmly entrenched in the understanding that God despises, God hates sin. But there's other definitions of hate that I think are important for us to understand because I think it expands our understanding of God even further. And and one of those would be this, that the word hate uh, in some cases in the Bible simply means to love less. And so it's not this aggressive, angry uh, notion necessarily towards somebody else or or something else. Sometimes it just means to love something less. Here's an example. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you at all. So this is Jesus talking, and he's talking about what it means to be his disciple. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So is God, like is Jesus here actually saying that we are to have this, this, despising of our family? No. What he's saying here is, you got to love me more than you love them. It's not a actual hate in terms of our carnal understanding of hate. It is simply the idea that in some cases in the scripture, we find that the term hate is used to explain to love less. And so in the case of being Jesus's disciple, then we are to love Jesus more than we love our own selves, that we love our families, that sort of thing. It's not that we're not to love our families because we know that, that Jesus has a strong affection for his own family and he asks us to model that same affection. But here we are to love them less than him, to hate. Some would suggest that it's hyperbole, But in the biblical definition of things, it simply means that sometimes hate means just to love less. And then this third definition that comes in, this third component of hate within the scripture, and this is the fascinating one. It's acting in opposition to what would be considered evil. So to hate is to act in opposition, to be an enemy of that that which would be considered evil. And so when we bring this back to who God is, it's a a really key point that I think for us to understand, um, and it's just pivotal to this whole thing. God's hate cannot be understood outside of his love. You catch that? God's hate cannot be understood outside of his love. And when we add that together, I mean, we, we have this, interesting pairing or it's not even so much a pairing it's a it's a submission it's this hate is submitted to love and so whatever actions hate takes love is the umbrella that covers that action and so there's this interesting dynamic that takes play uh, takes place with god 
God's love, right? Pastor Andrew spoke about this last week, did a fantastic job. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen to it. Uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always loves, uh, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is, a, is the description of God's love. It is. As a matter of fact, when you continue reading 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter of love that everybody oohs and ahs over, um, there's a challenge in it. And because Paul goes on to say, he says, like, well, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things away. And that's all still in the same context. So to love any way that is different than what is described here is to have an immature childish love. So in a sense, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is, look, this is love. You're being immature when you're not following this. Grow up. So as much as it can be used for weddings and these kinds of things, it, it is a defining of what the activity of love looks like and suggesting that if you're not doing love this way, you're being immature in your love. And so this is God's description of love. And because God is love that we read in 1 John 4, 8, this is kind of what he's like. Like he's patient, he's kind, he doesn't, God doesn't envy, God doesn't boast. Like it's, it's a really interesting image of who God actually is. And so when we, if we come to a biblical verses with human understanding of this truth, or sorry, if we come to a biblical versus human understanding of this truth, of this truth of, of God's hate cannot be understood outside of his love, then it's going to better equip us to answer questions about God's love and his hate. And I don't know about you, but I, I believe that we live in a world today where people are asking some of these questions of, okay, so if God is a God of love, then why this and why that? And why are his people like this or like that? And hate is one of those things that comes out quite a bit. Why do you hate me? Is I, a question, or, or I believe God hates me, uh, is, is a statement that I've heard from people, uh, whether they were sitting in my office or, or messaging me or watching somebody online, having these kinds of questions. So it's going to better equip us to answer God's, um, give an answer to God's love and his hate. I, I also believe that it'll help us understand um, the movement of God as it relates to him hating. What does it look like for God to hate? And why is that important to understand? And then number three, I would suggest that it's gonna, we'll better appreciate what it means for God to be in opposition to something and how to model that opposition in our own lives. So God went in opposition to something. That's that language of hate. The, um, the hate perspective of opposing or standing in opposition to that which would be considered evil. So. Here we go. Are you ready? Here's the difficulty. So Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, talk about the idea of the wicked are not able to dwell with God and he hates all evil doers. Wow. Like, wow, right? I mean, often we hear this phrase that I think is true, but I think it's incomplete when we place emphasis in any one direction of it. It's, maybe you've heard this. 
Now, I'm confident you've heard it. Love the sinner, hate the sin. You've heard this, right? What I find uh, often is that there is this disconnect with the second half of things. So we say love the sinner, and it means for a lot of people that we don't address the sin. Now, we would never suggest that. But it seems as though there's a heavy emphasis on love the sinner, uh, so that so much so that we treat the sin um, like it's less than it should be. On the other hand, we have a lot of people who rail against that statement because they're so focused on the sin that they forget to love the sinner. It's an interesting one. What we have in this passage and some other passages as well is this idea that God hates all who do wrong. Like all who do wrong, he hates. He works in opposition to. Another way to say it is that God hates evildoers. And so when we look at these passages of Scripture that we come across that talk about these kinds of things, I think it's important that we understand what it means to be an evildoer. Psalm 37 verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. And, and, and the, word, the Hebrew word here is ra'ah. And that is to, uh, to be good for nothing. <laughs> and it's not the notion of being useless. Uh, not only does this word mean uh, to be good for nothing or good at nothing, it also means to be bad whether physically, maybe we're doing bad things physically, to be bad socially, to be bad mentally. And this word is translated into evil 20 times and evildoer 10 times. That's a significant um, understanding. What does the word evildoer mean in the Greek? Well, in Psalm 37, verse 9, For all evildoers shall be cut off, because those who wait upon the Lord, I'm sorry, but those who wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So all evildoers will be cut off. And the word here is kakopoios. Kakopoios. Uh, it means bad doer. Or it's another term that gets used to describe a criminal. And so like the English language, two words are combined to create this Greek word. And these words are evil. And believe it or not, the word do. So to do evil. And so therefore the word literally means someone who does evil. And like Psalm, and, and in Psalm 5, we find that this person who does evil is someone that the Lord hates. And it's not just in Psalm 5. We find it elsewhere all throughout the scriptures as well that, that does God hate sin? Absolutely, without question. Does he hate those who sin? Ah, see, that's a little more complicated because our understanding of hate and isn't, isn't surrounded by love. So does, can you say that God... We're, we're very comfortable saying that God works against those who do evil. I don't think anybody has difficulty with that language. But hate, oh man, that's so powerful. Especially considering how Jesus relates to the term hate, right? Like if you hate your brother, you committed murder in your heart. And I think it's important that we distinguish between man's use of hatred in our hearts and, and God's use of hatred as it relates to evil because they are different. Now, it's important for us also to understand the context of Psalm chapter 5. So Psalm chapter 3, Psalm chapter 4, Psalm chapter 5, they're composed by David while he's in this wilderness. 
And he's in the wilderness because, believe it or not, his son, Absalom, um, is trying to take over the kingdom. He's trying to overthrow him. And so Absalom has this rebellion. He, um, and, and ultimately, there's this battle that takes place where Absalom is ultimately killed and, and David is restored to the throne. And that's the context of these passages. If you want to know that story, check out 2 Samuel 13. Um, actually, yeah, and 2 Samuel 15 as well. This is the, the story of what takes place with Absalom. And so what we find here is that in our text, Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, in the context of David being in the wilderness, his son, in, in David's mind certainly, having done some great evil against him, David writes about God to God a prayer. And in it, he talks about these evildoers. And in focus again, like I mentioned earlier, on verses 4 and 5, it says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. You catch that. Evil people are not welcome with God. Now, other translations will say the idea that they cannot dwell with him. So it is this, this residence with God that it's kind of describing, this consistent space with God, but they're not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Now listen to this, and this is like hard. You hate all who do wrong. You hate all who do wrong. You can't get away from that. It is a statement that is a black and white statement. And we can try and, and, and lessen the impact of that statement by saying, oh, but it's not really meaning the people. Actually, that's not true. It means the people. And it means that God works in opposition to those people. The hate of working in opposition to, right? So God's hate causes him to work in opposition to these people. He hates wickedness. The evil people are not welcome to dwell with God. The arrogant cannot stand in the presence of God primarily because they're not going to submit in humility. There's this arrogance, there's this pride. And it's not just the actions of people that God hates. Hates the people. Man, that's uncomfortable. But we can't just leave it there, right? Like it's, that would be really irresponsible because it reduces God to having an emotion in the way that we have it. And that's just not the case here. Remember, your thoughts are not my thoughts, says the Lord, right? Your ways are not my ways. And so when God hates, it's, it's not the same as when we hate. And so what we need to do is we need to consider what it looks like for us to hate and bring that under submission to God and do things his way. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, listen, he hates with a passion. Those who do these things, he hates with a passion. Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. So you could really say that we have a love that hates. We have a love that hates. We hate what is evil, period. Now, and, and, and we're to cling to what is good. And, and, and the difficulty that we have with a passage like this or passages that use this kind of language is, again, we reduce this conversation to hating someone with this aggressive um, wanting to harm them in a way. 
But we can't look at God that way. And here's why. So remember, for God to hate the evildoer is to work in opposition to the evildoer, right? So he's working against evil. He's working against the evildoer. That's the understanding of God hating the evildoer, right? With a passion, right? Okay. God takes no pleasure in judging the unrepentant. Now let's look at this. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. It says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So what is God's work against the evil here? Repent and live. His hate, his working in opposition to the evildoer is to try and do something to cause the evildoer to stop being an evildoer. That's what it is. It's love that that causes him to work actively against the evildoer, believe it or not, to the evildoer's benefit. Look, Romans, oh sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some are understand or some how some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Listen, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so when I'm thinking about and praying about and studying what it means for God to be love, and yet he has this hate that he has for evil and evildoers, what is the ultimate expression of that? Like, what does that look like for God to work in opposition to evildoers, to hate them? Are you ready? You're going to love this. This is it. The cross is the fulfillment of love the sinner, hate the sin. The cross is the fulfillment of love the sinner, hate the sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died, listen, for the ungodly, for the evildoers, for... Like, what? God's hate, in the context of the fact that God is love, causes him to work actively against the evildoer to the evildoer's benefit. That is not how my hate ever worked out. What a brilliant, like amazing way to consider the notion of hate as it relates to God. At verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, for a good person, someone might possibly dare. Sorry, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in this. Ready? While we were still sinners, some translations will say enemies of God, Christ died for us. The ultimate expression of God's love and hate, love of man and hatred towards the evildoer, the, the sin, is that he died for us. You want to talk about working in opposition to? This is working in opposition to. Another passage. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. Once you were alienated from God, listen, and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Right? So we were evildoers, which caused us, in, we were evildoers, and our minds were not united with Christ in any way, shape, or form. So we were these evildoers, and because of this, we were then enemies of God. And then it says this, but now, and by the way, that's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. 
the but God or but now. We're going to be doing a whole series coming up on this topic uh, of, of the great buts of the Bible. <laughs> we're going to call it something like that anyway. Um, but it's this idea of this is what you were, but God has done something in opposition to what you were. He hated you enough to do something in opposition to what you were so that you have opportunity for something more. He says, but now he has reconciled you by reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So listen to this. Look, you were once alienated from God, enemies in, in your minds because of your evil behavior. Evil behavior. And so we were viewed in that way as well. And then Christ comes along and, and God reconciles us through Christ's physical death. And listen, we go from being evildoers to holy in his sight without blemish free from accusation. There isn't a person on the planet in my history that I would ever have attached the emotion of hate to that would ever experience this from me. My hate was not like that. My hate wanted their ill, wanted their bad, wanted their hurt. And God's hate wants their redemption. What a weird thing to try and wrestle with. See, this is God's love when and hate held together. It is a remarkable thing. It goes on. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that is held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of end of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So God's hate in the context of his love moves him to save the world. You catch that? God's hate in the context of his love moves him to save the world. Man, that's just mind-blowing and exciting. And so you might ask yourself, okay, so what do we do with this? Like, where does this go from here? Well, let me offer this to you. Um, when you are reconciled with Christ, you are no longer this evildoer. Now, you're going to sin. I get that. Um, but positionally, right, you are reconciled through Christ and the, the blood of the cross covers your sin. You have forgiveness. You, you could reach out to God and, and seek that forgiveness. You were given that forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, so he removes your sin from you. Uh, some translations will say your transgressions from you. And, and so positionally, you are now viewed by God through the lens of his son. You have Christ's righteousness imputed on you, uh, covering you. And so you're not the evildoer anymore. But for those who have not accepted Christ, they're still in that place of evildoer. So does God hate them? Ah, please don't misunderstand me. Yes. But his hate for it is to change them. Is to give them the opportunity to be something completely different. So God's hate for them doesn't desire their ill. It saves them. He works in opposition to that evil. And, and so he wants the changed mind. He wants the changed behavior. He wants the changed heart. All of that stuff is ultimate opposition to the evil. How amazing is that? So does God hate? Yes, he does. And what is the byproduct of that hate then? What is the end result of that hate? Salvation. Salvation. What an incredible 
God we have. What an incredible God. So is there hope for wicked people? Okay, God offers hope for the wicked. Um, and, and ultimately, there's hope for, of course, all of us. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, it says here, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So understand this. In this passage, what Paul is relating to the Roman Christians is that they need to understand Sin entered the world through one, one man, right, Adam, and, and sin is conquered then through the works of Jesus, one man. This is amazing. Because if, if we viewed God hating evildoers so much that he just wanted to smite them, right, and just blot them out as, as his primary focus, then we would have a completely skewed view of who God is. But if God hate, hates of evil and of evildoers leads him to a place where he says, no, 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 here's the thing. I hate that evil so much that I want to redeem it so it's no longer evil. That's the greater hate. Like I hate it so much I no longer want it to exist. In order to remove it from being existing, I need to change it, make it something else. So he redeems. What an incredible act of God. For just as, just as through the disobedience of one man, many were sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many were made righteous, moving from evildoers to being righteous doers. So we're all going to face judgment. We all will approach that judgment with a long record of wicked thoughts and wicked deeds, myself included, all of us. And yet some will be welcomed by God into his everlasting kingdom. And those who received his free gift of salvation, who move from a place of being the evildoer to being the righteous person, which is God's ultimate act of destroying the evildoer. He, to destroy the evildoer is not just to kill them. It's to make them righteous. It is completely mind-blowing when we start to think of it this way and have a better, more biblical view of, of who God is and how he works with those that he's in opposition to. And this is not going to be, uh, we're not going to be welcomed on the basis of any righteousness that we've earned, but only upon the righteousness of Jesus. And so there's hope for wicked people, wicked people, if they turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. So we got, return to Jesus. Romans tells us that if you um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. That's it. There's no front-end loading of anything. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you're saved. Done. And it's genuine. And it's true. Now, this is God's work. This is how God's hatred looks. This is a love that hates, but the hate is to work in opposition to for the purpose of change. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing God we have. And how misunderstood when we just look at things in isolation and don't look at the total context of what the scripture has to tell us about the topic of hate with God. And so we have this God who loves and under the umbrella of that love, we have all this other stuff. And one of those things is hate. And he hates evil. He hates evildoers. He despises these things. They can't have no place with him. And so what does he do? He hates it so much that he desires to change it. And he offers us salvation so that we move from the evildoer to move 
towards a person who is righteous. So here's the question. As followers of Jesus, we are told that we are to live as he lived. Okay. So here's the question I've been wrestling with. And maybe you can wrestle that out uh, for yourself as well as we walk away from this particular passage. Because I'm just going to leave you with this final question. How does our hate match up with God's? How does our hate match up with God's? Like, is my hate spawned from love that so wants to work against the evildoer to their benefit? Like, is that what my hate actually looks like? Or do I desire harm? That's God's hate. So different than how we normally view those things. But how incredible. I mean, again, it is a love that hates evil, but it hates evil so much that it dies. Like he dies for sinners, for evil, for those who were enemies of God so that we were no longer enemies, so that he no longer needed to work against us. What an incredible God. This is how he functions. We are to become more and more like him. So how does our hate match up to God's? What an incredible, incredible thing. It actually gives me a better context and understanding of when Jesus says, um, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. What did he do? His love and his hate of wickedness and his hate of evildoers caused him to move in the direction of his enemies. Do you hate enough to want their change? What an incredible question. Challenging. But I pray that together we will be able to walk forward and become more and more like Jesus, even in our emotions and even with hate. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that, Lord, if there was anything here that maybe I just wasn't clear enough or, or, or was just of me and not of you in any way, I pray, Lord, that those things would be stripped away and not remembered and not done anything with, um, but rather, Lord, that we would become more and more like you, that we would function from a place of love, that our love would mature, and that out of our love, any of our other emotions are under that umbrella. And that when we hate, we will hate, but we will hate to the extent of wanting that person to be so different and work in opposition to their evil, which is to change them towards good. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.